How does a case of free beer sound? Our pals at Beer52 are offering listeners to Factitious a free case of eight craft beers. Simply go to www.beer52.com forward slash fact 22 and cover the meagre postage costs of £5.95 to claim your free case now. Did you know that Beer52 is the biggest beer club in the world? Each month they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, including Belgium, Czech Republic and America. So far, members have experienced beers from 40 different countries spanning five continents. From big juicy pale ales to delicious sumptuous stouts, you can try the best beers from across the world with the UK's number one beer club. And if dark beer is not your thing, you can choose the light only case. If you haven't had your fill of facts from this week's podcast, you will also receive the award-winning magazine Ferment and a couple of tasty snacks. Even if, after all that, you're still not satisfied, you can simply pause or cancel your membership at any time. So that's beer52.com forward slash fact22 to claim your free case of eight craft beers now. That's beer52.com forward slash fact and the numbers 22. Hello and welcome to Factitious, a podcast which makes you question what you know and almost certainly go away knowing something you didn't know before. I'm Tom Harrison and as always I'm joined by Rob Graham. Hello. And as always on Factitious, each week one of us will take on the role of the expert trawling through little known facts about a range of topics, teaching the other using our three golden facts designed to shock, surprise and wow our student. And this week, I'm going to be teaching Rob all about the Bermuda Triangle. I literally, as you started your introduction, I thought, I can't remember what this week's episode's about. <laughs> Normally, we know what the episode is that the other person has researched. And yeah. I was like, Tom definitely told me, and I could not remember what it was. And that was a, a pleasant surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, at the end, you asked, you caught me with my trousers down when you asked me what I was going to do, and I yeah. hadn't decided. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I know now, though. So, yes, for, for those who perhaps were wondering all week what I'd be talking about, it is the Bermuda Triangle. I thought I would dabble in this sort of that slight kind of mysterious kind of half conspiracy theory kind of idea of like, let's see if we can get to the bottom of mm. what the hell's going on over here. To get started then, as always, I'll just, I'll ask you kind of, what do you know about the Bermuda Triangle or what do you think of it? Do you think there is anything weird going on? Do you even know why there might be something weird going on there? No, no, and no. <laughs> I, know, I know basically the idea behind it is that lots of ships and planes and stuff seem to go missing over this or in or over this particular area of land. I couldn't even... Oh, area of water. I couldn't even tell you where it was. I presume near Bermuda, so I'm, I'm going to guess somewhere <laughs> in the Caribbean Sea. But yeah, very, very little about the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. So for golden fact number one, then, I'm just going to kind of flesh out actually what the Bermuda Triangle is. So we're going to start with what is it, which you've kind of touched on already, and I think everyone kind of gets the general premise. But in case anyone hasn't heard of it, um, which I think I'd find surprising, 
Um, so the Bermuda Triangle, which also is referred to as the Devil's Triangle, which I hadn't heard of, um, is an area that is sort of steeped in mystery and surrounded by conspiracy theories, and its legend comes from stories of planes and ships going down, sinking, um, and even disappearing entirely. So where is it? You are quite right. As the name suggests, Bermuda is a good starting point. So the Bermuda Triangle is an area in the Atlantic Ocean, and the points of the triangle, um, they can depend on like who you ask, but the kind of widely accepted points of the triangle are the Caribbean island of Bermuda, uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then Miami, Florida. Oh, so a fairly big space. Yeah, stretching from like the Caribbean um, to... Yeah, like mainland US. Wow. Uh, okay. And then I also want to touch on the kind of where the story came from, so like the the early report. So actually there were, there were quite a few incidents recorded much earlier than this, but the one story that kind of really captured people's imagination um, and the, the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle kind of like took hold um, was uh, an incident on the 5th of December 1945 um, and it was five U.S. Navy planes took off from their base in Florida, um, and they were just doing a routine training mission known as Flight 19, but neither the planes nor the crew were ever seen again. So they set off on a routine mission, just a bit of training, um, and they never came back, and no one's ever seen or heard of them. Flight 19 set off from a U.S. Naval Air Station in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, and it was five um, torpedo bombers. Um, they were Avenger planes. Um, so 14 men in those five planes took off in the early afternoon on, like I say, it was a routine training mission. Unfortunately, the instructor, Lieutenant Charles Taylor, he was supposed to be the one kind of like leading the training and the session. So yeah. basically everyone kind of follows him. Um, he got hopelessly lost shortly after, I don't know why I'm laughing, <laughs> he got hopelessly lost shortly after their training, um, they were doing a bombing run, um, but just after they'd done the bombing run, and it was like, I presume time to head back, yeah. he realised, I don't know where I am. Um, and it's important to remember, like, this is 1945, so this is the era before GPS becomes like a standard, kind of now, planes, you can basically you know exactly where yeah. you are at all times. They had radar, though, at that point. They did, yes. Um, but at, at this time, pilots basically had to rely on their compasses and then make calculations based on, like, okay, how long have I been in fly- How long have I been flying, in what direction, and at what speed? It's crazy when you think back to yeah, now. <laughs> planes basically fly themselves. <laughs> I know no disrespect to pilots, but they. I enjoy flying because I know really... The pilot's not actually flying the plane. He just <laughs> presses a few buttons, the plane takes off, and he is literally on autopilot for the rest of the journey. Mm-hmm. Like, 1940s, the idea that they're kind of almost like sticking their finger out the window being like, <laughs> wind's blowing in an easterly direction, we'll, uh, we'll take off now. Like, that's yeah, terrifying. Very little, yeah, information being other than what he, the pilot can see yeah. and hear. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, according to the transcripts of the in-flight communications, both of the compasses on Lieutenant Taylor's plane were malfunctioning, so not a great start. And they also suggest that he wasn't wearing a watch. So this idea that you need to be judging like what direction you're flying in. And how long. For how long yeah. and at what speed. He basically doesn't have two of those key bits of information. Are you saying he can't have just been going one Mississippi, two <laughs> Mississippi? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, 
But important to know that these planes, as I say they were known as Avenger planes, very, very heavy. They weigh more than 10,000 pounds, which is about 4,500 kilograms, and that's when they're empty. And obviously, they're full of gear, Jeez, obviously, a person yeah. and fuel, although apparently not very much fuel. Um, but this basically means that if an Avenger goes down at sea, it's going to go down pretty hard and pretty yeah. fast, like it will sink. Um, and then add to that the possibility of anyone kind of surviving a landing in high seas was slim. Add to the fact that the chance of surviving in water in December yeah. at night um, in those cold waters um, and the, the likelihood of the wreckage making quite a quick descent to the bottom of the sea, like, really, it's kind of no wonder that they vanished. And because recovery efforts were made, but considering they'd just been flying around in random directions after getting lost... No one would have any idea where they really were. Yeah, you could be looking a thousand miles in the wrong direction for all they need. So recovery efforts, as you might expect, basically, they they came to nothing. So neither the planes or the men on board have never been seen again. Um, And it was... The story at the time didn't really, you know, get much public attention. Um, but in 1964, uh, a writer called Vincent Geddes wrote a cover story for a magazine about the disappearance of Flight 19. Um, and that everyone was kind of like, ooh. And he, he coined the phrase, the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. And everyone was like, ooh, there's this mysterious place where ships go, like almost like a ghost story. You know, you go in and no one comes no one out comes alive back. or whatever. Okay, so moving on to golden fact number two then. And so I'm going to do the next two facts. I'm going to kind of do cases for and against the Bermuda Triangle. So for golden fact number two, what if I told you that the Bermuda Triangle might be some kind of space-time portal? I would uh, knock you on the head and tell you <laughs> you were fucking mad. I... Wouldn't blame you. Um, So, of course, I kind of had to dig into... There's a lot of conspiracy theories and weird sci-fi stuff that surrounds the Bermuda Triangle. Loads of different theories. Um, A few of them that I'll just rattle off. We've got a potential gateway to another dimension. Nope. Of course. Um, My mind is not open. (laughs) (laughs) The fact there's an alien base under the sea, and so they sink planes and uh, basically kind of want to you know kind of like essentially the, the opposite of a ufo abducting people from above they're they sucking, them, sucking in. them down and research them for their underwater base also no um there was also talk of atlantis being the, the <laughs> kind of the source of it and atlanteans wanting to induct people into their magical kingdom um and then a classic um uh, is that kind of like great leviathan sea creatures like the kraken and whatever like drawing, sucking them down yeah, into the midst Davy of Davy Jones's locker um but here's one that i actually found a first hand account for so that this idea that it's a kind of space time portal thingy you say first hand experience i want to know <laughs> where this is going so not me no good to be clear um so basically on December the 4th, 1970, uh, a realtor and private pilot known as Bruce Gernon, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, took off from Andros Island in the Bahamas, uh, along with his father and business associate. So they were flying from the Bahamas to southern Florida. They were going to do some real estate business. Um, he was quite an experienced pilot. He'd done the route loads of times. The weather was calm. The journey was quite short. Um, so Bruce... Just on paper, this is a really simple journey, yeah. nothing to worry about, he's done it before. 
and everything was normal until the plane approached the Bimini Islands, which is about 50 miles east of Miami, and that's where they sort of noticed a strange cloud forming ahead of them, and uh, it seemed to be moving and then growing considerably in size, and Bruce estimated the cloud to be about a mile across, and it stretched from sea level up to about 60,000 feet, which that's just essentially a wall of cloud yes, coming yeah. at you, and they were cruising at about 11,000 feet. So these are only his estimates, but to think this is like six times higher than I'm flying at is um, quite... A, yeah. So maybe take that with a pinch of salt. Um, and the clouds essentially then began to surround them, forming a kind of ring-like shape with a hole in the middle. Um, Did this guy do drugs? <laughs> not that I know of. But let, let me finish. There's a lot. It gets a lot weirder. Right? It gets a lot weirder, okay. <laughs> um, so, that, yeah, there's kind of like a ring in the middle, almost kind of like a hurricane where you have, like, the eye of the storm. Um, but it wasn't a hurricane. It wasn't, like, strong winds. It was just clouds. Um, and Bruce said he'd never seen anything like it before, but he decided, as you would, for something you'd never seen before, I'm just going to fly straight into the, <laughs> the ominous clouds and try and, like, kind of pierce the ring and come out the other side. But if they're saying that the clouds were starting to surround them then presumably they had to fly through them at some point they couldn't just like drop down yeah perhaps although you're saying there was like a black hole at the bottom of this cloud there was a a hole in the middle that was like clearer that sigh was one of exasperation <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here we go i'm going to introduce bruce here these are his words um as we approached the break in the cloud now formed a perfect horizontal tunnel one mile wide and more than 10 miles long. So it's like a ring that he's going to fly through. Right, yeah. Rather there's, than a there's, hole there's kind of been down. bisected. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we could see clear blue sky on the other side, and we also saw that the tunnel was rapidly shrinking. When we entered the tunnel, its diameter had narrowed to only 200 feet, and I was amazed at what the shaft now looked like. It appeared to be only a mile long. Don't know what happened to 200 feet. Um, instead of 10 plus, as I had originally estimated. Light from the afternoon sun shone through the exit hole and made the silky white walls glow. The walls were perfectly round and slowly constricting. We were in the tunnel for only 20 seconds before we emerged from the other end. For about five seconds, I had the strange feeling of weightlessness and an increased forward momentum. When I looked back, I gasped to see the tunnel walls collapse and form a slit that slowly rotated clockwise. End quote. So during their time in the cloud tunnel, all of Bruce's electronic and magnetic um, navigational instruments started to malfunction, and the compass was eerily spinning slowly counterclockwise all by itself, even though the plane was... He just decided, I'm going to fly straight through it, stay true. And when they exited the tunnel, they decided, right, I'm going to make radio contact with Miami, um, give them my location, or like my estimate location and altitude, and just see kind of what they know about the situation, as you would, same reaction. But strangely, the airport couldn't locate them on their radar. As they journeyed onward, they continued to fly through more clouds, but things still weren't quite normal. Here's a bit more from Bruce. Everything was a dull greyish white haze. Visibility seemed like more than two miles, yet we could not see the ocean, the horizon, or the sky. The air was very stable, and there was no lightning or rain. I like to refer to this as an electron <laughs> electronic fog, because it seemed to be what was interfering with our instruments. 
We were in the fog for three minutes when the controller radioed that he had identified an airplane directly over Miami Beach, flying due west. I looked at my watch and saw that we had been flying for less than 34 minutes, so there's no way we could have reached Miami. We should have been approaching the Bimini Islands. I told the controller he must have seen, he must have spotted another airplane and that we were approximately 90 miles southwest of Miami and we were still looking for Bimini. Suddenly, the fog started to break in a weird electronic fashion. Don't know what that means. Yeah, nice and vague. <laughs> Long horizontal lines appeared in the fog on either side of us and the lines widened into slits about four or five miles long. He's very good at estimating distances. And I suppose you have to be if you're specific. a pilot, don't you? I suppose. We saw blue sky through them and the slits continued expanding <clears throat> and the slits continued expanding and joined together. Within eight seconds, very specific, all the slits had joined and the grey fog had disappeared. All I could see was brilliant blue sky and as my pupils adjusted to the abrupt increase in brightness... I realised I was on Miami Beach. I saw the barrier island of Miami Beach directly below. Sorry to spoil the story, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> when they landed, they were shocked to discover that the flight had taken less than 47 minutes... And this is shocking because the journey would normally take twice as long. So as well as there being a black hole that can suck you into the Bermuda Triangle, there is also some kind <laughs> of like one of those travelated things that used to get on um, yeah. Crash Bandicoot that just, just flies you straight through. Yeah, space-time portal. This is, yeah. this is what I'm on about. So Bruce said, We had travelled through 100 miles of space and 30 minutes of time in little more than three minutes. So by this estimate, it basically means that the plane would have had to have been travelling at 2,000 miles an hour. And this plane is not like a commercial jet or anything. It's, I think its cruising speed was something like 250 miles an hour. So it's the journey just simply does not match up. Well, I'm sold. <laughs> and Bruce theorised that this electronic fog was the cause of this. And was he then said it was likely, therefore, the blame, um, to blame for many other disappearances attributed to the Bermuda Triangle. He was so convinced by this that he goes on to write an entire book called The Fog, colon, a never-before-published theory of the Bermuda Triangle phenomenon. And then he wrote another book with a co-author called Beyond the Bermuda Triangle. And so just to finish off another word from Bruce, he says, I didn't believe in time travel or teleporting. <laughs> <laughs> Let me finish. I didn't believe in time travel or teleportation until it happened to me. I'm Bruce Gernon, and I flew through the heart of the Bermuda Triangle before I'd even heard the term. Skeptics have dismissed the triangle as a non-mystery, but they weren't in my airplane when the fog surrounded my craft and I leapt ahead a hundred miles. So, space-time portal. Discuss. I'm not sold. <laughs> <laughs> it was I pulled this example specifically was because... You know, we, we've never seen, like, the Loch Ness Monster or whatever, like, the Kraken, like, no one's ever seen it. But this is a first-hand account where, obviously, we only have his word to go off. Yeah. But it's an interesting... Call him a liar if you want, but it's... If the journey was that short over that distance in that plane, that is impossible. What I would like to know is if there are any other first-hand accounts that could verify that. Because you like... We did the Aliens episode where you talked about, basically, well, I talked about it, didn't I? It was my episode. I talked about how basically every person who gets abducted by aliens has the same experience. They go into the they go into the UFO, they're given a tour, they're then plugged into something, 
they then normally have sex with one of the aliens <laughs> and then they leave. Like, everyone has the same kind of pattern. Yeah. I'd be intrigued to know whether if there are any other first-hand accounts that are able to verify Bruce's claims. Because if the second person says it... Yeah. I mean, there's no credibility to it. Like, we don't have a random time-space portal <laughs> just in the middle of the sea somewhere. I would be surprised, yeah. Go on. <laughs> I'm looking forward to Golden Fact number three because okay. Golden Fact number three is going to be more down what I think, <laughs> I think about the Bermuda Triangle. Okay, so let's, yeah, let's not waste any time. We'll, we'll jump into Golden Fact number three, which is that the Bermuda Triangle is a load of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to talk to you about a man called Larry Koosh. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, I don't know whether you've heard of him. I hadn't. Nope. I, don't, I don't see why anyone would have unless you're a Bermuda Triangle enthusiast. So Larry had trained to be a pilot, um, but actually backed out on what would have been his first day on the job <laughs> as an actual pilot. He decided this isn't for me. Um, so he returned home to Arizona um, to work at the university. Um, but, it, you know, he still had an interest in flying um, and he had a lot of people coming to him asking about tales of the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. Um, and so he decided to kind of like, it caught his imagination, he decided to look into it. He didn't believe in space-time portals, um, alien bases, or the Kraken, and so he basically wanted to get to the bottom of the mystery and debunk the myth. So in 1975, he wrote and published a book called The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved. And in it, he basically argues that many of the claims that um, Vincent Gaddis, the guy who wrote that first story mm -hmm. about Flight 19, and as well as works from various other writers, he basically goes on to say that these are either exaggerated, they're questionable, they're unverifiable, or just plain inaccurate. So loads of different issues with all these different stories, as there are with the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. So, for example, Kush argues that a large percentage of the reported incidents that were attributed to the mystery of the Triangle actually occurred well outside of it. So we have those three established yeah. corners. Um, a specific example of this, like a really bad example, or perhaps good, depending on what side you're on, um, was the disappearance of a, an ore carrier, which was reported as, quote, lost without trace three days after leaving an Atlantic port, when actually it had been lost three days out of port, but in the Pacific Ocean. So completely wrong area of the world, thousands and thousands of miles away. And they've just attributed it to... Someone basically yeah. made the mistake and... Yeah. Oh, so they've done it more as a geographical mistake than they've gone, oh, this would sound like a good story for the Bermuda Triangles. Yes, yeah, so they basically just attributed the wrong area to a ship going missing. Um, and so he basically, the, the research he'd done, he, it's quite easy to, and simple to do, really. He basically found stories about the Bermuda Triangle and then reviewed newspapers from the region on the same dates and the yeah. surrounding dates, looked at the reports of the incidents, and then kind of tried to cross-reference them with potentially relevant events. So usually storms, like bad weather, um, and things that weren't mentioned in the kind of the, the tales of like the mystery and the disappearance. So in the end, he basically Kush concludes that a few different things. So the number of ships and aircraft reported missing in the Bermuda Triangle was not significantly greater, proportionally speaking, so relative to the size of the area, um, than any other part of the ocean. So it's kind of caught people's imagination based on some stories, but there's there's nothing to say that this is a particularly dangerous 
area and ships and planes go missing, sink Everywhere. all over the world. Yeah. That's not a, a big deal. Um, as we all know, certainly now, this book was written like more than 50 years ago. Um, the area is frequently struck by tropical cyclones. We know that that's you know, the Florida coast and stuff are very pl- um, prone for hurricanes. And, and surely, storms. in the initial story from Bruce, that could be what he was flying into? Yeah. Yeah. Or a space-time portal. No. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, next is that reports of disappearances would often either fail to mention things like storms, so it would just... Be, or it would, it would misrepresent them. So it would say that the incident occurred in calm conditions yeah. when Larry had found in a, in a newspaper there was a storm that day, but the writer has conveniently left that bit out or has lied about it or misunderstood the situation. Um, so there are records that just flat out contradict right, okay. the stories. Um the numbers themselves, so numbers of ships and planes going miss- uh, missing, have been exaggerated, usually by what he Larry attributes to just sloppy research. So, a for example, like a boat disappears, it gets reported as all oh, the Bermuda Triangle sunk another one, but then that boat turns up a week later, and no one says no one. Yeah, no one then goes back and corrects the report. The report is still out there as ship goes missing. Actually, they just. Yeah, maybe a storm would have took them off course or whatever, or something else yeah. happened. They turn up later, and no one goes, "All oh, right, yeah." The public then don't hear about that. Are the majority of these events things that have happened? Sort of like they've not happened recently. I'm guessing that now with the advent of GPS and all of these sort of tracking methods, that we haven't had a report of. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so he wrote this book in 1975, yeah. so his, uh, his research was carried out a long time ago. And as I say, yeah, um, we have GPS now. Basically, yeah. anyone on a ship or boat can, um, or a plane can tell where they are at all times. Yeah. And you don't hear, at least I don't hear, tales of ships going missing in the Bermuda Triangle. No, you, you hear tales of planes going missing, but not tend to be in the Bermuda Triangle. Like You hear, you, you, you hear about these planes, like you think of what was that Malaysian one that... Yes, sorry, I mean, as in the, specifically for the Bermuda yes, Triangle, yeah, yeah, yeah. this air of mystery has kind of dissipated, hasn't it? Um, so he basically concludes that the Bermuda Triangle is a legend that's been manufactured and then like kind of built by writers who either purposely or perhaps unknowingly, they kind of made use of misconceptions, faulty reasoning, and then kind of with a bit of sensationalism, they use it essentially to sell news or books. Um so he's firmly against it. Um, so, yeah. Crikey. <laughs> I think Larry's done quite a good job there. I think most people kind of, unless you're particularly into those sorts of conspiracy theories and things, um, I think most people don't kind of give it any credit now. I just searched his name, actually, on um, Wikipedia whilst you were talking, and my favourite thing about him was that he was part of a group that was called the Committee for Skeptical Inquiries, <laughs> which uh, I think sums up your point quite I well. I did not know that about old Larry. Yeah. So yeah, how, how do you feel coming away? Um, you... I'm glad that your episode focused equally on the sort of debunking it as, <laughs> as much as it did on proving it, because I think we've done a few episodes in the last series where we talked about, like... We did like Atlantis, didn't we? And I was very careful to make sure that I sort of said, 
But let's remember, this place probably doesn't <laughs> exist. We did aliens. Let's be clear, aliens probably do exist, but not in the way that we're thinking about them. There's yeah. probably, there is extraterrestrial life. I think the Bermuda Triangle, any intelligent person, I'll be careful what I say in case there's anybody listening who does think the Bermuda Triangle is a real thing, <laughs> but I think like most people, sensible people, probably are leaning towards Larry's impressions yeah. rather than uh, what was the first guy's name? Bruce. Uh, Bruce. Bruce. Yeah. So yeah, I think that that's where I'm standing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I thought I found Bruce's story interesting, um, and the fact that it is there is no logical explanation other than the fact he's lying, and I guess he may have just lied to be like to get some attention which has clearly worked because yeah. we're talking about him about 50 years later um but yeah I, I i couldn't resist i had to dig into one of the conspiracies and i thought space time portal was uh about as good as it got <laughs> but equally as ridiculous as any of the others yeah oh, of course so that brings us to the end of the Bermuda Triangle then. Would you feel confident going on a flight or a cruise? In fairness, you probably have flown. You've been to Mexico, haven't yeah. you? So there's a there's a chance you may have flown. Yeah, I don't know what the, the route Bermuda was to Triangle. Mexico with I presume I presume you'd go across yeah, you're gonna go that way, aren't you? You're not gonna go across to America and down, yeah. are you? You're gonna yeah. I think you do yeah, no, I think you do go over to sort of like Canada, America way and then you go down the coast, I think. Oh, so possibly I've avoided the Bermuda Triangle then. Maybe. But you'd have probably come down like the east coast of America. Well, I've lived to tell the tale, there Tom. There you go. Never been I've never been on a Caribbean. You didn't cruise. mysteriously arrive five hours early. I was a bit like, <laughs> I mean, we we left in twenty nineteen and we arrived in twenty fifteen. <laughs> or no, you're not going back in time, are you? You're going okay, further forward. forward. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am. Um, I am pleased to have learned about the Bermuda Triangle, <laughs> and I'm pleased to uh, have <laughs> to have it debunked. <laughs> cool. And that brings us to the end of our episode, then. It does indeed. So, would you like to know about what we're learning about next week? I would indeed. I'm sure all our listeners at home would. So we've gone. I think I've I've talked about this on on social media. So I'm going to talk about Buckingham Palace. Okay. So we are recording this episode that you're listening to now and the Buckingham Palace episode in the week after Queen Elizabeth has passed away before the funeral. So Mm -hmm. obviously next week, by the time you're listening to this, normal stuff will be back on the TV. Life will have kind of gone back to normal. But in the UK, especially the past couple of weeks or the past week has been quite bizarre. Yeah, The the country's basically been sort of in a state of mourning. So I'm going to do Buckingham Palace, hopefully between recording and um, the episode being released, nothing dramatic happens that means um, we shouldn't do the episode. I think obviously it's important to be respectful, but I I think people at the moment are particularly interesting. I saw um, some articles highlighting the fact that the Crown... Has had a surge. Well, you're in watching interest. it for the first time. Yeah, aren't exactly. You? Yeah. Like people have taken an interest in the royal family and want to know more about them. And I um, love the fact that rather than watching documentaries about it, they're watching a fictionalized version yeah. of some true event. Uh, people are hungry for that sort of thing. I don't, I think it's there's no shame in it driving interest. Oh in no, no, the, no, and there's no. arguably you know other than like jubilees and things like the, the interest is 
especially in this country, is just incredible. Yeah. Um, so I think obviously we'll do it in a respectful way. But of Buckingham course, Palace yeah. in itself is an interesting topic that we had marked down before all of this. Yes. Yeah. And very so I true. just think it's a you know, it would it would make for an interesting episode. So obviously we're talking about the palace. Obviously the Queen will come up, but she's not going to be the focus of it. We may and actually, future, and actually, but... I've written the episode and. There are bits and pieces with the Queen that I've talked about. Of course. But it's, it's, it's about Buckingham Palace rather than yeah. Her Majesty herself. Cool. Well, I look forward to hearing all about Buckingham Palace. Um, so, yeah, join us next week for that then. And we should probably, well, not probably, definitely should <laughs> give a shout out to our patrons. So, if you're not aware of what patron is, it's obviously a, a sort of a way of you being able to support the podcast in a financial way in return for, for benefits. So there are three different tiers of benefits that you can get from um, our podcast. We've got a sort of a £5 tier, a £10 tier and a £15 tier going up with increasing levels of benefits. So everyone gets early access to the podcast. Everyone gets ad-free episodes. And then the further you get up, you get stuff like um, bonus content. So you get Factitious Plus, which has kind of got all the stuff that we couldn't quite fit into the main episode um, is on Factitious Plus and you also get your shout outs and the opportunity to suggest topics slash questions as part of that as well so Tom will leave a link in the episode description so it's patreon.com forward slash factitious head over there and see if there's anything there that uh, takes your fancy and four of the people that have done that so far are Stuart Hill Mike Kavanagh Sarah McDaniel and Rob Craig a big shout out to all of you who are on our geniuses tier Lovely. Yep. Shout out all of you. Um, and then if people want to get in touch with us uh, with any questions or feedback or anything, how can they do that? Head over to our social media channels. So we're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Twitter and Instagram are both at Factitious Pod. And then the Facebook is just search for Factitious Podcast and, and that should come up with a little magnifying glass and a big old F. <laughs> so, yeah, head over there. And if you want to contact us on email, it's just factitiouspodcast at gmail.com. Perfect. Okay, well, I think that wraps us up then. We will mm. see you next week for Buckingham Palace. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you for joining me, Rob. See you later.